0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon, and today I'm thinking once again about Burning Man, but... Since I'm not going to be able to make it there myself this year, I thought that, well, I'd just go back to the 2014 Palenque Norte lectures and see who I've missed and uh, haven't podcasted yet. Interestingly, uh, to me at least, the name at the top of the list is someone who is uh, also at the top of my list of people that I've begun to think about as one of our young elders. But now that I just said that, I'm remembering that one should never imply that a woman, uh, particularly a young woman, is an elder. But uh, I'm sure that you know what I mean, that I'm using the word elder in the sense of being a very wise person. And uh, Ashley is uh, definitely wise beyond her years, in my opinion. And as you're going to hear, Ashley Booth is promoting conversations about psychoactive compounds in order to have intelligent, level-headed discussions about the responsible uses of psychedelics for both clinical and therapeutic purposes. Through her own inner work, she's developed a passion for removing the stigma and fear surrounding psychedelics. Her strength comes from uh, combining a background in the sciences with a bigger and deeper view of humanity and the world. And, as you're going to hear, Ashley uh, also inspires audiences to question the default world's thinking about psychedelics. And so now, here is Ashley Booth delivering her Planque Norte lecture at the 2014 Burning Man Festival. So I'd like to introduce Ashley Booth. Uh, Ashley is a scientist, philosopher, and advocate currently working as an oceanographer in Los Angeles. Uh, Ashley uses her scientific background to break through the war on drugs rhetoric and have an intelligent and scientifically-based conversation about the safety and use of psychedelic substances. Um, So we're very excited to have her here with us today. Without further ado, here's Ashley.
1: Thanks, Pez. All right, start out. Uh, I'd like you to please... Raise your hand if you've had your mind blown by something unexpected that changed the course of your life forever. Okay, now please keep your hands up if that, one of those occurrences happened at Burning Man. Okay, that was almost everyone. <laughs> and keep them up if that was uh, under an altered states of consciousness. Also, pretty much everyone. <laughs> awesome, well I'm in good company here, you can take your hands down now. Uh, so today I'm going to talk a little bit uh, first about my own personal story, um, the need for psychedelic advocacy. Um, the co- the title of my talk is psychedelic advocacy: communicating with the default world, and and then give you some tools about how to communicate with such a con- uh, about such a controversial topic. To so to start off, uh, I'm actually an oceanographer by training and profession, and. Uh, it's kind of funny because marine biologists and oceanographers, uh, the Scientific American, uh, Scientific American Journal says that that is one of the most depressing jobs in science. <laughs> and I, I, I've definitely felt that because being an uh, environmentalist and seeing what we're doing to the environment can really get you down sometimes. And I know that that was the case for me. And to be honest, for a while I really kind of hated people um, because it was just I saw them as the enemy um, to what was being you know, destroyed, which was something so beautiful. Uh, but then uh, my first Burning Man happened, which was about eight years ago now. And uh, that experience really affected me deeply in two ways. One, just being a part of this community and being able to uh, see how people interact with each other and what people can create really renewed my faith in humanity and I don't I don't say that lightly it was it was such a profound experience um, and then the second thing was that I, I had the opportunity to try MDMA for the first time and as you know given the, the name ecstasy uh, you know I would think it was going to be a pretty good time it's been a pretty good marketing <laughs> but uh, what I didn't expect was it to be such a, a, a lasting and profound experience for me because being from a science background and being the daughter of an engineer and a mathematician, uh, I'm I've always been very head head focused, very you know logic based, and to be able to come into this experience and have my heart open and be able to connect with people that in a way that I've never been able to do before was profound and it permeated the entire rest of my life um, in all areas, you know, not just you know, when I'm under the influence of of this psychoactive compound, but it was on all parts of my life. And so fast... Oh, so then, um, you know, as any good scientist would do, uh, given the breakthrough of this kind of magnitude, I felt more research was needed. So (laughs) uh, fast forward about seven years now, uh, I found myself in a 5-MeO-DMT ceremony, and if you're not familiar with 5-MeO, it's not uh, NNDMT, which is what more people have heard of, which is uh, Terence you know, McKenna's Elf Machines. Uh, 5-MeO is actually a compound found in the, the venom ducts of the Sonoran Desert Toad, of all things. It's also found in many plants and actually even is made by our own bodies naturally. So it's a really fascinating compound. And it's one of the most powerful psychedelics that we know of. And through that experience, uh, and in the context that I did it in, which was a very, you know, intentional, um, comfortable, you know, supportive environment, I was able to go to a place that I had never thought existed. And my heart was, you know, it started to be kind of warmed up through the use of MDMA and, and, and the, the, the people that I've met through the Burning Man community, uh, it just blew me open and i it was such a paradigm shift for me that when i kind of came back from my experience i mean i was just so full of gratitude from having being able to have the opportunity to be able to even you know know about this substance let alone try it and and then it just struck me that so few people know about this and you know 5meo is pretty obscure and you know most people you know have have such a, a contorted view of what psychedelics are in the first place and so i felt like i was like activated in a way and that i wanted to be a part of this change to uh kind of heal humanity and it it changed my perspective from that kind of uh environmentalist like we need to save the environment from these people to we need to heal humanity individual one individual at a time so that it heals the whole system. And so I became very much more human-focused. Uh, and in an effort to uh, figure out ways that I could communicate that and be able to contribute to that change, I was thinking about, well, what, what are my strengths? My strengths are, you know, being a scientist. And so I've been using my scientific background to be able to kind of do my own like literature review of the the scientific research that's being done on psychedelics um, to be and then being a bridge to be able to communicate that to other people and in in the same effort I've been also interested in just breaking through the rhetoric that we've all been fed about what psychedelics are um, and what my goal is is really to ignite curiosity in everyone and so if we can you know if someone just has a little a little a little spark that might you know encourage them to go you know on their own research path then you know we might we might more people might have a different perspective to be able to move forward in their life so before I move on um, I'm a uh, I'm going to ask for a little bit of audience participation. And so before I get into that, uh, I wanted to just speak one word about legality. Uh, It is illegal to uh, possess any uh, scheduled substance. Um, Most of the psychedelics that we all are familiar with are scheduled. Um, But the thing is that we're also blessed with freedom of speech in this country. And so you can talk about your experiences um, openly. But I would be very cautious about talking ever about selling, buying, or making any kind of scheduled substance. Um, It's just not a good idea. So um, as I go forward in my talk, you know, please, if you do feel comfortable to speak out when I have an opportunity, um, share your own experiences. Um, And before I move on, I want to define what psychedelic is because it's kind of a fuzzy term. And a lot of uh, classically, I think, psychedelics you know um, lsd is definitely one of the classic psychedelics it's something that that you know often has a visionary kind of component to it but something that changes your perspective and the word psychedelic actually means mind manifesting so it's it's allowing you to tap into something that's inside of you that you may not have normally been able to do in your kind of baseline consciousness um but you know there are also other kinds of compounds like MDMA, which may not fall into that classic category, um, but can also be considered um, psychedelic. And so I'm kind of using a more broader term of anything that you can use to kind of change your perspective, both of the world and in your own of your own process. All right, so again, hands up if you've uh, taken psychedelics. Okay, that's pretty much everybody in the room. <laughs> and um, does anyone want to uh, briefly just say one of the reasons why they decided to, to take psychedelics?
2: Uh, I took psychedelics because I found out that a lot of my favorite writers had written some very influential books uh, as a result of taking psychedelics, and uh, I wanted to become a famous writer. So I just decided to do what they did.
1: <laughs> awesome great uh and then is there anyone in the room that has decided to not take psychedelics and would they like to share their reasons for not for not doing them not no uh never done them okay well we'll just move right along then (laughs) okay yeah anyone that's done them and now now chooses not to do them does anyone want to share
2: i i don't not do them but i do them very occasionally um, and usually in a ceremonial context mm-hmm. um, the Dionysian aspect has sort of lost its appeal for me mm-hmm. um, but as far as like going deep um, going going far mm-hmm. and exploring what my consciousness has to offer rather than the hedonism which i think is important um, I've definitely uh, grown up or I, I think that's my maturation process mm-hmm. not, no longer doing it for the pleasure of it
1: yeah, that, that leads really well into the, my next question, which was, um, Is has anyone done psychedelics in a ceremonial or intentional setting um, that would like to share?
2: Great talk, by the way. Um, so I I uh, I was I think uh, of all the ones I'd like to sort of mention, um, my 5-MeO experience was really very profound. And for me, even for my first mushroom trip to, to that, it's always been about feeling like I'm pushing my perception. It's like I'm getting a higher resolution across all of my senses Um, and that was one in particular and it's also something I've I've felt even with some no substances and some crazy breathing uh, exercises but really allowed me to um, leave my ego for a brief moment and then um, sort of bear witness as it came back online and that was a pretty profound experience for me.
1: Thanks for sharing. So I kind of broke up You know some of the reasons why we why why we choose to do psychedelics into three categories. Uh, One, escape. You know a lot of not just psychedelics, but many any other kind of altering -altering, um, mind-altering substances or drinks. You know alcohol is one. You know definitely used for escape in a lot of cases, and you know escape can be you know either can be something that's used for something that can be very harmful to the, to the body and, the, and, and personal growth. But it, on the flip side, it can also be something, sometimes we just need a break from our brains <laughs> just to reset sometimes. And, you know, that's also something that we need. Um, another category might be healing. You know, psychedelics can be very cathartic, um, you know, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of the science on some of these different compounds and a little bit later that are used for healing and in clinical um, contexts. Uh, and then lastly, uh, a celebration. And Rick Doblin, who's the head of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, um, phrased it this way, and I thought this was really great. He said... You know, instead, of, instead of saying recreational use, which has a lot of like, negative baggage associated with it, he said celebration. And I really like that, and I think Burning Man is a perfect example of that, is, you know, A lot of people taking psychedelics just to celebrate life and celebrate people and celebrate just being alive. And I think that that is just a legitimate um, uh, reason for doing this than anything else. So another, I mean, in another aspect associated with that is just uh, creativity. You know, um, Burning Man is again another amazing example of that, and how much creativity flows from, you know, these substances. I mean, this place is 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 built for this, <laughs> and is such a beautiful illustration. All right, so now I'm going to move in a little bit more toward um, move into. Uh, the importance of of what psychedelic advocacy is and the need for psychedelic advocacy in our world. Uh, So what do I mean by psychedelic advocate? Uh, I've been thinking about, you know, how can I be more vocal? How can I come out of the closet as someone that does psychedelics? How can I be a living example of someone that takes psychedelics in a mindful way that, you know, is benefiting a lot from these experiences because I think a lot of us, and I know that I did, but when before I started um, doing any of these kinds of psychoactive compounds, I had a lot of baggage, just, you know, thinking about oh, who are the people that take these drugs? And it's usually I had these kind of dark uh, thoughts of these people sort of doing them because they're, um, you know, trying to escape from some dark part of themselves, or um, I don't even know what you know. It's but to be able to be out there and, and just be that living example, I think is a really important, uh, aspect because not, um, not only is, I mean, the state of the world right now, I mean, especially just in our country, depression is just rampant, you know? And I mean, this is really, uh, illustrated, you know, by Robin Williams that just passed away recently. I mean, it, it, it's really heartbreaking to see that you know this is we we, we wear these facades, uh, and that it's just it's hiding something that's kind of festering right underneath. And we you know if I wonder if he had had more tools to be able to tap into whatever it is that he was dealing with, that you know he may still be around. Um, but as it is, he gets to become a reminder for all of us, um, that we need to deal with that stuff. You know, we can't hide it behind something. And, um, and you know, it's not just the, you know, kind of traumatic experiences that we also need to be, uh, healing from, but it's also just kind of like daily maintenance. Like I don't think that our culture really does a good job of this. Daily stresses and daily pressure of just from all sorts of things, and if you don't have a, a constructive outlet for that, I think that it creates um, a lot of pain that then kind of can come out in more unhealthy, sort of bigger ways. When if we had just uh, done a little bit of more maintenance on an every, you know, every day sort of basis, you know, um, there are many tools that are out there. You know, yoga, breath work, you know, running, hiking, being in nature. These are all things that help us clear a lot of that stuff. But the thing is that psychedelics are a really powerful tool for this. And the thing is that they're not actually in the toolbox right now for most of society. And so this is a really, and this is why I've decided to be a psychedelic advocate and encourage psychedelic advocacy uh, is because I think it needs to be on the table. One of the things that I also want to keep um, to point out is that by being a psychedelic advocate, I'm not saying that psychedelics are good for everyone by any means. Um, I just would like it to be an opportunity for people who would like to try it uh, and be able to have a context around people who can try it in a setting that is conducive for growth and healing. So some of the research that I've been uh, reading through up is on one of the ones that MAPS is... Uh, been getting a lot of preps, press with right now is using MDMA or ecstasy um, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And this is really fascinating because uh, what, what they do is they give um, MDMA to um, a person with post-traumatic stress disorder in a sort of psychotherapy uh, context. And they found that after two of these uh, settings, two of these therapy settings... That after that, these people are that 83%, eighty-three percent, a 3 or six percent of people are cured of PTSD. Not you know on on meds for the rest of their life. Not in therapy for the rest of their life. Cured. I mean, it's it's really incredible, and. It's something that, you know, it's, it's getting press and it deserves to get press. And the, one of the reasons why this works, which I think is really fascinating being a scientist and, you know, very head focused in my own way, uh, is that it affects memory um, in the way that we process our memories. Because uh, I think the way that most of us think about how memories work is that maybe, okay, we have some sort of experience we write down the experience on a piece of paper, and then we, you know, put it in a file folder. And then when we want to remember it, we come back to the file folder, pull the the memory out, read it again, and then, uh, you know, have the memory, and then and then put it back. But what what's what analogy that actually is more close to the truth is that when we pull that memory out of that um, file folder and and look and read the memory, we actually rewrite it every time we remember it, and then it goes back in. So every time you remember something, it can get imprinted with whatever your present state of mind is. So with people that have PTSD, they've had a massive amount of trauma. That trauma and that emotional um, stress gets written into the memory, and then when they remember the memory, the stress and the emotions come up again. But they're the stress of it coming back up can even amplify it even more. And then that the amplification of that, that, that trauma can get rewritten into the memory again. So you're kind of amplifying it uh, every time. And so what MDMA does, which is really fascinating, is that when they do this MDMA-assisted therapy, the person, when they're remembering their trauma, they're in a very um, much more calm, loving, compassionate space... And so when they rewrite the memory, they're not rewriting it with the same amount of trauma because those emotions haven't come up again. And so it's very effective in that you're not rewriting that trauma. So that's just one example. And what's really kind of interesting is when I found out about this, I was talking with my boyfriend and I said, well, you know, if they're doing this in this psycho, you know, therapeutic setting, well, I wonder if we could do it. You know, you know, you've had some, you know, rough childhood moments that maybe we can process through. So last New Year's, we uh, took some MDMA and just kind of found a quiet spot for ourselves and talked about his uh, childhood, his relationship with his mom in a way that he was able to uh, open up and feel a lot more compassion for her and... And be able to process that. And what's really, I mean, amazing that since that one little session together that we had, he's been able to kind of understand and be much more compassionate towards his mother. And his relationship with her has really improved quite a bit. So, I mean, even in that, you know, I wasn't—I'm not a trained therapist. I really just sort of held space for him and just um, asked questions to kind of clarify what he was going through. And it was really effective. So, you know, it it was so easy to illustrate how, how powerful these things are. So they're not, psychedelics are not, or again, I'm are not just uh, are not the only tools that we have in this toolbox for, for mindful for mindfulness. We also have, um, you know, yoga and breath work. My boyfriend and I j- recently just tried holotropic breathing, uh, which is really fascinating. I don't know if anyone has heard of it, but um, it uh, was developed by Stangroff, who was one of the original um, psychedelic um, scientists. And he developed this breathing technique put to music uh, such that you could actually reach altered states of consciousness just with breath. It was really wild. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. It's legal. It's just your breath. Uh, it's very therapeutic, so I highly recommend checking it out, you know. Um, but, I mean, I, I see psychedelics is a way to a tool to kind of get us towards this state of mindfulness or towards this state of higher consciousness it's not necessarily an ends to a me a means to it it's a it's just one tool in our toolbox so one of the other important things in being a psychedelic advocate is uh keeping in mind uh you know when we're talking to people, what the main concerns are that people might have about psychedelics, because we've been fed all of this rhetoric for so long, and there's such a contorted view um, that we really need to make sure that, especially um, being in this kind of subculture of of people that are using psychedelics in a way for all of these um, more beneficial and positive uses, we need to make sure that we still are tapped into what, The rest of the world thinks about these things and be able to know how to communicate with them. So knowing what the safety risks of these things are, because that's one of the things that most people are concerned about. They've been told that these are so dangerous. And so knowing the resources about what the uh, safety is, arrowid.com is a huge resource to our community. For people to be able to know how much um, to take these things, and if there are any kind of um, interactions that these um, substances can have with other things you may take, whether it be alcohol or any other kind of uh, prescription drugs, um, and also just knowing what some of the myths are. You know, uh, when I, I mean, everyone's kind of heard of the story of you know somebody taking acid and jumping off uh, you know a building thinking they can fly. I looked into that it seems like it's a complete urban legend, <laughs> which is just... And it just keeps getting regurgitated over and over again. Um, who knows where it started, but that's just... It's, it's kind of maddening that the you know this misinformation just keeps getting recycled over and over again. But because it really is just kind of fear-based. You know, we've all... Everyone's heard of the kind of bad trip. Um, and one of the things that uh, I just... I'm volunteering with the Zendo um, this year. Uh, the Zendo is a project associated with maps that's creating a safe space for people that are having a challenging experience on psychedelics so that they can have someone to talk to uh, to be able to process through what they're what they're going through and maybe turn something that might have been something that could be considered a bad trip um, into something that's actually very healing and, and, and an instigator of growth. And so instead of saying, you know, bad trip, maybe saying something that's more like challenging is a better way of thinking about it. Again, there was an experience with a friend where he was having a really challenging time um, at a festival we were at and didn't, you know, we want to be just having like a good time sometimes, but sometimes it can be very challenging. And what I pointed out was that, you know, this is why we come out here. We don't come out just because it's easy. We come out also because of the challenging times and because afterwards we know that we've grown so much and that that is also part of it. Uh, being an an oceanographer and related to the ocean, the the analogy that I really like to use is um, it's like being a crab and crabs uh, shed their their exoskeleton to grow um, every time because they don't have bones that can grow on the inside like us. So they have to shed their shells and then what they do is they're all soft and squishy. So if you've heard of soft shell crabs, that's what's happened they then breathe in all this water and they get almost twice as big and then they recalcify their shell again. Um, so, you know, after we've had these really, you know, challenging experiences, you know, we've shed off this shell, we can be very soft and tender <laughs> afterwards and we need, you know, the support network around us to be able to continue um, and integrate that growth. So that's a little analogy that I, I, I take with me whenever I go. So who here has had experiences where uh, they felt that psy- psychedelics have led to a different, um, a different perspective? Okay, it's most of you. Um, any increases in creativity? Yep. Uh, any increases in playfulness? Yep. <laughs> increases in compassion? Yeah, so these are all really beautiful things that can come out of psychedelic use. Um, and ones that I think need to be communicated more. And I think we can all agree that there's there's things here that deserve to be shared. So this leads me into how do we talk about psychedelics to people that may have a lot of, uh, you know, cultural or societal baggage associated with what psychedelics mean. So I want to go over a couple of sort of tools to uh, communicate... Um, about something that is so controversial. And I think the most important thing to keep in mind here is it's not your their responsibility to understand you in the way that you communicate. But if you choose to, you, you can... If you want someone else to understand where you're coming from, you need to take responsibility for your own communication so that you can meet them where they are and that they can hear you. Because I can't expect anyone to be able to read my mind, so it's it's me seeing where they're at and meeting them there. And a good way to start off something like that is just to ask questions and see pe- where people are at. Because if I start talking about something that might make th- somebody un- too uncomfortable too quickly, they'll they'll turn off and they won't be able to listen anymore. And so, just asking people questions, you know, about what kinds of you know mindful work they've done maybe what kinds of what they've heard about psychedelics or any other kinds of substances just so you can kind of get a baseline of where people are coming from because um it's you that are meeting them where they're at so you got to get an idea of where that is t- to begin with again you know this it's through this process it's it's a process of coming out and in the last year, I've had a lot of coming out experiences in that I both came out to my parents um, that I did psychedelics and, and had that conversation. Um, and I also took my younger brother to his first festival. Um, and both of those experiences, you know, while it was stressful at the time, I feel so grateful that I did that. Uh, and now I've really started the conversation to be able to be more open like I don't have to feel like I'm I'm hiding a part of myself anymore Uh, I used to have uh, two Facebook pages because I felt like there was certain people that I you know could open up to and then there were other people that I couldn't open up to and I wanted to keep them separate and I wanted to control the situation but there are parts of myself that I feel so passionately about, psychedelics being one of, just one of them. And as long as I keep feeling like I need to hard parts of myself, then I'm not really being true to myself and true to those parts of myself. And I think that that's something that we all need to keep in mind as we go through um, this process of kind of awakening and opening up. A way to the art car goes by. <laughs> so as a psychedelic advocate, You know, I'm trying to be an ambassador for this movement and someone that, again, ignites this curiosity. And that's the kind of phrase that I've been sticking in my head. It's like igniting curiosity, sparking curiosity, which then leads to this um, igniting consciousness, really, Um, and so that we can all start healing each other and and make this world a much more beautiful place. Uh, Let me skip back to my, um, my brother, bringing my brother to his first festival. That was a really... I was so anxious to bring him because I, I knew he, he was going to be open to it, but at the same time, you know, there's so much baggage that we carry around about our childhood and the way that we, you know, the things, the stories that we make up about the people that we grew up with or the people, our family members. And, you know, they may not even necessarily be true anymore. And I I think that, you know, part of my own growth process has just been to challenge myself to be able to keep pushing um If I feel uncomfortable about something or, you know, I'm feeling resistance, like, and I think, well, why am I even concerned about this, really? You know, to kind of keep probing into that to see what it is that I'm resisting. Um, Because it may not be something, it may be something unconscious that I don't even know about and not really even logically based. And so that was a really good example for me to be able to just push through some of that. That subconscious baggage that I was carrying around, and just and just be open. And you know, he had an amazing time, and he came up to me and he said, like, you know, actually, I knew that this was going to be a, a really an amazing time, but everyone's so nice, and I'm just, you know, really glad that you brought me here. And it, you know, I started tearing up because I just, you know, that was exactly <laughs> that was exactly what I wanted to, to hear, and 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 I accomplished my my goal, and it was just, you know, it. it it ended up not being that scary in the end. One of the other things to keep in mind while we're uh, communicating with people is, and again, meeting people where they're at, is to be careful of our language because language can trigger a lot of things for people. Um, especially when we're, you know, around a sub community of people that has our own jargon, we kind of use these this language over and over again, like things like fractals and chakras, and like, you know. But people outside of, you know, this, this sub community of ours doesn't have doesn't know what we're talking about, and it, if we use that kind of language, it can either turn people off, or they may we might lose them. So we really need to be careful about that. And then also, you know, it's it's funny that's a funny thing about trying to describe experiences and I think it's by design that we can't actually completely convey an experience fully to someone so that they can feel like they've experienced it themselves. Because if we could do that then you no, know, we would need to, to go out and experience those things. But if we since we can't, you have to go and have that experience. I can only just kind of convey and, and spark your spark your curiosity to go and do that. You know, it's just like I remember, you know, when I was prepubescent and and really wondering what an orgasm felt like you know i I, there's no way to describe that to someone that hasn't experienced it and i was so curious and so anxious to be able to have that experience but you know there's no way to convey that to someone it's something that they have to experience for themselves and you know i think that psychedelics are something that's such a great tool for that because it's not something it's allowing people to have their own experience it's something that it's not coming from externally, necessarily. It's something that can come up and bloom and blossom from internally. And something that I think our society... I think we've had a little bit too many crutches on. Instead of going out and hiking a mountain ourselves, we go and watch someone on TV do it. You know, uh, you know when, when I think it's important that we continue challenging ourselves and continuing to push our own experiences and to continue exploring. Another important thing is to be able to that everyone um, that does psychedelics is to do your homework, because especially when you're communicating with people, they're going to have a lot of questions. And if you don't know the answers to those things or at least have a good enough, uh, you know, maybe you don't know, but you've you know, you've got some good websites that are good resources to look those things up on it's going to make it a little bit harder for them to understand and feel uh, like you're giving them good information. Great websites for that. Reset.me is becoming bigger and bigger and a lot of trip reports and a lot of great resources for people looking to get into psychedelics in a mindful way. Arrowhead.com is also a really great resource uh, for both safety as well as many other types of um, books and other resources there. So, you know, there's so much out there that we have uh, access to. So make sure you're, you know knowing uh, you know to be able to kind of anticipate those uh, those questions from people this was a, a, a hard lesson for me bec- as a scientist um, because I, I'm always ones that just like facts and logic and so I'll give people a whole bunch of facts but the thing is that you can give people facts till you're blue in the face and that's not necessarily going to change their mind about anything what you really what really has helped me in my own communication is, Adding an element of my own personal story and adding an emotional element to it. I have been a vegetarian for eight years and a vegan for about four. And that's one of those controversial, very uh, emotionally charged kind of subjects. And so when trying to talk to people about that, instead of talking to people directly about... um, uh, Uh, about some of the facts and reasons why I do it. I talk kind of more from like the perspective of I. And so, and and a good kind of mantra to to keep in mind is how can I speak from I? How do I speak from my own experience? Instead of saying, oh, you know, when you do this, this happens. Instead say, when I do this. This happens. It really allows you to own your own experience. It's a really pretty powerful tool that I've been using recently. And it also allows people to, to get more in touch with you and see you as the person having the experience. And I find that people uh, are less prone to um, dig their heels in and be a little bit more um, uh, stubborn, maybe, because sometimes uh, if, I know it's the same with me. If someone's trying to convince me of something, I'll just take the counterpoint, uh, the opposite point, just because I'm being um, uh, kind of just just for the sake of being and and thinking the opposite. But you want to keep the person on your side, and so sometimes it's not about necessarily you know you're not trying to convince anyone of anything because you can't really do that. The change has to come from within. So all you're trying to do is again spark that curiosity, and a, a way that I've found that's really useful to be able to do this is when talking with someone about the reasons why I do some of these things that are a little out of the norm is to instead of trying to talk directly to the person in a way that um, might feel a little confrontational, I'll make up a hypothetical person that I'm talking to. I'll say, oh, well, I was talking about the same topic with a friend of mine the other day and this is what I was saying to them. And then the person that I'm actually with in that moment can just observe that conversation that I'm having with this hypothetical person and then they can making a decision for themselves rather than feeling like they need to make a decision or make a counterpoint or something right in that moment. They can be in their own experience and just witness that. And then that might, again, spark something that they can, though, go research again later. You know, and a lot of times when I do talk about my experiences, I do get a little choked up because... um, these have been the most powerful experiences of my life. And it gets me really <laughs> emotional. And when, I sh- and when I am vulnerable and let those emotions out with the people that I'm communicating with, that speaks louder than any other words that I can say. They can see and feel how much these compounds and how much these experiences have made to, um, uh, in my life in such a way that no words that could ever really do. So I want to uh, go back to a little um, audience participation. Uh, I'm going to take give you guys about two minutes to uh, pair off with someone that you um, either you've come with or you not come with, um, and just give a little um, take turns giving your own little uh, spiel about why you do psychedelics. You know, think about some of the ways that I've talked about communicating in, in different ways, and uh, so yeah, just take this opportunity to, to think about how you would communicate that to someone else. So I'll give you two minutes starting now. All right, wrap up your conversations, and we'll just wrap up real quick and then move into co- questions. I hope that was useful for you guys just to be able to have a little bit of practice and talk about that to someone else. So one of the things that I'm uh, about to launch, well, about to start the process of... <laughs> is uh, creating a psychedelic advocacy social media campaign. Um, so right now, I ha- just have a holder page on psychedelicadvocacy.com. Uh, I also have a Twitter account, uh, psychedelicadvo.com. Or .com. <laughs> it's Twitter, so no .com. Uh, and then um, I ha- I've, and the, the, the purpose of um, both of those things is to start kind of creating... Uh, positive psychedelic messages and memes so that people can share those and then also using the hashtag psychadvo to so that people, when they post something that might be a po- show psychedelics in a positive light, whether it be science or somebody else's personal experience or in some kind of ceremonial context, people can put that on, on their post and share that, and then we can also then create a community of people sharing this positive psychedelic message. So follow up on that when you get off Playa and uh, keep in touch. Uh, and so I'd just like to end with the fact that As an advocate, uh, we're not really trying to convince anyone of anything, you know, because that's not even possible, really. Change only comes from within. So all we're, you know, as a psychedelic, all psychedelic advocate, all I'm trying to do is spark consciousness, and through that sparking of of curiosity, you know, ignite consciousness, and uh, with that, I will take any questions. Thank you.
2: So, uh, first of all. Uh, congratulations on coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Must feel very liberating. Um, and it sounds like you've had some really positive uh, reactions from you know uh, opening up to people. Has there been any um, negative uh, reactions or uh, times you didn't go as expected? Or and if so, how did you uh, manage it?
1: Um, I think I've kind of erred more towards the cautious side, and. Um, I'm kind of more on the the slow, the the long the long play for this. You know, this is not this is not something we're going to change overnight. And so, I've been kind of seeding things. You know, seeding little um, uh, uh, things that may have to do with psychedelics in in the various relationships and contexts that I'm around. Uh, but I haven't I haven't really had any experiences. There was there was somebody completely negative. Um, but I think I usually I'm pretty good judge at figuring out where people are at so that I'm not pushing too many buttons at the same time. So I think it's sometimes we need to open people up slowly.
2: And just as a follow up, in terms of opening up people, you know, opening people up slowly uh, for those that you really might feel could benefit, um, but that's a big jump right off the bat. Any good strategies for like how to get them slowly in that? direction if you know
1: yeah totally um well as i said the holotropic breathing that we uh, that i just did with my boyfriend recently was a huge um crazy crazy experience you know anything that that can um uh a practice of mindfulness different kinds of yoga practices are a great resource i actually after i came out um after i had my five meo experience um, I got into a nine-month Kundalini Yoga teacher training program because I was like, I need more tools to be able to help integrate this experience and be able to integrate it into my everyday life. And so, yoga is a huge, um, huge resource for that, just to get people in them that mindfulness state, and then also just, um, you know, that, and then the holotropic breathing. You know, hardly anybody has heard of that, and it's a huge, you know, huge healing and resource. And what was kind of interesting was because when we did the um, the intro to that, uh, a lot of the people were talking about psychedelics and ayahuasca ceremonies. So even if you brought someone in there that has n- no experience with psychedelics and just breathing, a lot of people were kind of talking about it. So you know that's a kind of just opening up, um, you know, allowing people to meet other people that are in the community and other other living examples of people doing psychedelics in, in mindful ways. All right, awesome. Thank you very much.
0: Before I forget to say it, uh, since this talk was given in August of 2014, about a year ago, a few things have changed. And uh, Ashley's Twitter handle, for one, but uh, the best way, I think, to probably stay up to date on Ashley's activity is on her personal website, which may be found at Ashley Booth, A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-O-O-T-H, all one word, ashleybooth.net. And I'll link to her uh, sites in today's program notes, which, as you know, you can get to uh, via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, I guess that maybe I should add a little comment about holotropic breathing, uh, since there are probably a a lot of our fellow saloners who have practiced it. In fact, uh, I tried it myself about 14 years ago when it was uh, all the rage out here in California. But uh, what is interesting to me is that uh, Ashley didn't know about it until about a year or so ago. So I guess my question is, uh, has holotropic breathing peaked and almost disappeared, or is it making a comeback? And uh, maybe some of our fellow saloners will leave a comment in today's program notes if they uh, know how widespread that practice is yet today. But I do want you to know that it has been of great value to many of my friends and is something that, well, maybe you want to look into, uh, particularly if you're uh, out in the boondock somewhere and uh, don't have an easy way to become directly involved in psychedelics themselves. Also, uh, I hope that you picked up on Ashley's urging of us to transition from talking about recreational use of psychedelics to using celebration instead. As I think back to uh, some of the more memorable times that I've had while under the influence of psychoactive substances, I can honestly say that I never thought of those times as mere recreation. To me, uh, recreation is uh, playing baseball or fishing or something like that. But uh, the times that I've had on psychedelics can most assuredly be called celebrations. So uh, I like that a lot and uh, plan on using it myself from now on. You know, uh, I've been involved with psychedelics for a long time now and one of the things that really amazes me is the fact that new information and new ways of looking at things, even by simply replacing a single word, celebration for recreation for example, uh, still kind of jumps up and surprises me. Uh, But Ashley really hit home with me when she suggested changing the phrase bad trip to challenging trip. Now, that may be a simple thing for you, but... For many years, I've been bragging about the fact that over many hundreds of trips, I've never had a bad one. But (laughs) Ashley just now gave me a major insight when I realized that while I have never considered any of my trips to be bad, well, there have been quite a few that have been extremely challenging. So, uh, hey, thanks for that, Ashley. Another thing that her talk uh, just now caused me to think about is when she was talking about telling her parents that she used psychedelics. And I'm here to tell you that doing such a thing gains great respect for me, because in my own case, well, I never told my parents. In my dad's case, of course, I couldn't have because he died in 1975, and I didn't become involved in psychedelics until 1984. Now, I'll be 73 years old next week, but my mother didn't die until I'd turned 62. That's right, I was 62 years old and still hadn't come out of the psychedelic closet to my mother. At that time, I'd already been wearing my hair long and in a ponytail for about 10 years before she died, but she always associated my long hair with me being a computer geek. She never liked it, and she always tried to get me to cut it. Until the last time I saw her, that is. And not long before she died, in a very weak voice, she said, Larry, I really like your ponytail. Well, I can't even express what that meant to me and still means to me today. Sadly, I now realize that my mother and I should have been talking about psychedelics all along. You see, she was an epileptic and took an unbelievably high dose of phenobarbital every day. In fact, she took it all the time that she was pregnant with me. I was born with a lot of it in my blood, but, you know, back then nobody cared about those things. But getting back to coming out of the psychedelic closet with your parents, it's something that you should do now, today, or as soon as you can. Because my hunch is that no matter what your age right now, letting your parents know what you think about psychedelics may just open some interesting new relationships for you. Don't knock it until you tripped with your parents, by the way, or your kids, I should add. But before I get more carried away with myself, I'd better get on with today's program and introduce today's second speaker, who is a person that I consider to be at the very top of the hero list of the good guys who became involved in the war on drugs. Her name is Amy Ralston-Pova, and my wife and I were fortunate enough to get to meet and listen to Amy over a decade ago at one of Kathleen Wirtz's famous salons in Venice, California. Well, guess what? Those salons have now been rekindled by none other than Ashley Booth. And on the bicycle day just past, Amy was the featured speaker at Ashley's Salon. So I'm going to let Amy tell her story herself right now, but I think that a spoiler is necessary first for any of our fellow slaughters who don't already know Amy's story. And basically it's this. Rather than roll over and rat out some truly deplorable, despicable, and cowardly people, Amy spent nine years, a little bit more than nine years of her life, locked up in prison. She is a hero of the highest order in my book, and... I do apologize in advance for the audio quality, but Amy's story may be one of the most important talks that you're going to hear this year. So now, here is Amy.
2: Okay, so um, anyway, I'm
3: honored to be here, and this has been a really long journey. I um, first joined MDMA in March of 1984, and um, I was... uh, I was set up on a blind date and was with some friends, and by this time, I had spent quite a bit of time uh, exposed to drug culture, Um 82, guys probably, some of you don't know those years, but um, uh, I was a model, and I was out in the club scene a lot, so I kind of burned out, and I was staying home a lot, and I wanted some spiritual nourishment, and um, uh, so, anyway, I got roped into this blind date, couldn't stand my blind date. And uh, my friends asked me if I wanted to try some ecstasy. I'd heard of it, but I was sort of like, eh, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. I've had a bad experience with a coiled wands, and like, <laughs> <laughs> and so, I never embraced Nancy Reagan's just say no policy. And uh, she talked me into it, I said, okay, fine. So, uh, it wasn't very long before I realized when this started kicking in that this was something that, it, very different very unique and not your average recreational drug so i uh, was like oh my gosh you know i was in a, a kind of a dive place and uh, the music and the smoke and the people i was like, to get out of here so i went outside to get some fresh air and um I was, I was walking like a sobriety test, and I just kept saying, hello love <laughs> myself, what is this stuff? And then I, I, I rolled my head back, and there was a full moon directly above me. And that was the first time I heard my inner voice. And very, very clearly, whether it was the moon or whatever, I felt a very strong voice that said, go home. And... Um, If you've ever experienced a spiritual awakening, uh, that Ashley described, and I'm sure a lot of you have, uh, because of psychedelics, um, it it was kind of shocking, because I'd never heard something so loud that was not my own thought. And uh, so I went inside. I told my friends, look, I need to go home. And um, so they accommodated me. I went home. I knew I had to go look in the mirror. I went to the bathroom, turned the lights on, Went to the mirror, and I'd never seen pupils dilated before. So needless to say, I took a journey and kind of swam into my pupils and said things I never would have said, and um, and I had a full-on spiritual awakening. So that same night, somebody walked up to me, tapped me on the shoulder, and insisted that he had to see me again. He said, there's just something about you, you've captivated me. Corny pickup line, I know, but some it, it worked. So I, I wasn't interested in giving him my phone number, but I just rattled it off. I said, "If you can remember my phone number, you can call me." I just wanted to go home. So that man, eight months later, was the man I married. He was uh, the number two person in the nation to take MDMA recreational. Michael Clegg was the first person who took. MDMA recreational also there in Dallas uh, if I didn't say I'm from Dallas and um, my husband was a Stanford Law School graduate he knew Michael Clegg I never met Michael Clegg but I had heard that Pauline Clegg turned my husband onto ecstasy uh, my husband never did drugs he um, was a health freak and uh, very successful didn't really fit the mold but he he um, He opened me up to metaphysics, uh, introduced me to a lot of books. I deified him. He was the love of my life. He also had a lot of demons. And uh, because I have to rush through the story and and jump through so I can also get to some very pertinent parts of it, um, if there's any holes and you want more information, um, you can seek me out and I'm happy to share more. But um, after three years, um, well, his demons were triggered by alcohol. Two drinks, and this other person would emerge that I really hadn't met. Who we called Word Harold. He acknowledged that this was an entity that was very, very different from uh, the wonderful person I had married. And if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody who has a dual personality like that, it's it's a it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of trauma because when your heart is invested. You, feel, you experience a lot of pain. After three years, I had to move to Los Angeles. I just had to get away. And he, he was a very manipulative person, so it didn't work out where I could just like divorce him and leave. It was a situation where I just kind of needed to sort of finesse my way out of the, out of the relationship and say, look, we're going to remain good friends. But well, He lived in Dallas. I lived in a, a Los Angeles. And we stayed on good terms he wanted a reconciliation again I got to move forward Uh, one year after I was out in Los Angeles I found out that he was arrested in Germany and um, so uh, that was kind of shocking Uh, he traveled to Europe a lot because he had a business called InnerCert but I was contacted by his lawyer that was assigned to him and he asked me to please retain a lawyer for Sandy who would go over to Germany and I did I got involved. I went to Germany as well to visit him. And I was asked to go, uh, again, I'm I'm speeding forward real fast, to go find some funds that he had uh, sequestered in some clandestine vaults. And um, if you know anything about the conspiracy statute and the drug war kicked in, thank you, uh, George Bush Sr., mostly Reagan Bush, but George Bush Sr. used it as campaign platform, and that's when all the laws really kicked in and changed. So conspiracy is if you do one thing, one overt act, you're guilty for everything that everybody else did. And by involving myself or even getting some money and moving it or hiring a lawyer or whatever, that triggers the conspiracy statute, which... talking really fast, but anyway, so um, uh, six months after I, I did that and visited my husband and found out about his arrest, I pulled into my garage, and um, I was rushed with by guys who were pointing guns at my face. Back then, they were just wearing plain clothes. It wasn't SWAT like everything is today, and they flanked me and dragged me out of my car into my house, and um, that's when um, the, the the pictures start. Yeah. Okay. So. The, the yeah. Right. So if anyone here doesn't really understand what the big deal is with NSA and um, the massless um, surveillance uh, 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 data gathering that they do of our personal um, emails and and stuff. Um, I can explain what's wrong with it. It's once you become a target or once the government has some interest in you personally, it's infinitely easier now for them to just look up your phone number and immediately find out who you're who you communicate with and it lends you it lends you wide open to their harassment tactics, which they didn't even have that back when this happened to me. But so I just pressed this one right here. Okay. So um when um, um, when when they when they rushed me into the house and um, you're just it, it's so overwhelming because first of all we entered through the kitchen there were people in every room of my house who were pulling drawers out everything was in the floor the refrigerator contents were in the floor
1: mm-hmm.
3: everything was just crazy this door was not. It it wasn't even there. So until you've walked through your home and seen a hole in your home where a door used to be, um, you you can't really process it. So um, I I really couldn't even process what was happening to me. But um, they uh, this is after we tagged it up. I didn't even think to take any pictures uh, very much of the damage that was done. And what pictures I did have, I only got a few back because they take everything every time they would raid me. But this was the first raid and um, I was in a room over here, they threw me in a chair, and they started telling me that we know that your husband is in prison, and we know that you know that he is in trouble, and he is a really bad guy, and it turned into the classic good guy, bad guy routine where somebody was screaming at me that, you know, I'm... I'm in deep shit. I'm looking at a lot of time, and then somebody comes in, and he's the attractive guy, and says, uh, you know, back up, back up, leave her alone. You know, like, uh, back off, guys. Would you like some water? Amy, would you like, you know, somebody please get her some water. So you've got kind of that energy going on. And um, this guy, the designated good guy, kneels down, and he he puts his hand on my knee, and he's like, Amy, we're your friends. (laughs) Uh, while they're destroying my home, and, and that never ceases. They can, I can hear them downstairs. I had it a, a, was downstairs, and then it was also a basement level, and you can just hear the destruction going on. And he said, "Look, we 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 want to talk to you." And um, so then the process starts, where they start asking questions. And if you know the Miranda rights, anything you. Uh, say can will be used against you before you know it' they're, they're putting words into your mouth they're like you know you you know that Sandy was arrested right you know he's in Germany and just just a nod of your head can later turn into that agent testifying saying she admitted it she knew that you know so I was in such shock at what had happened to me. It, it really had an adverse effect because I think sometimes that maneuver works on people where it scares them for me I was just like a clam I just was just like still trying to process what the fuck is going on here so I, I just kind of let him do his like maneuver and um I, um, that's when the whole test begins when you're put in a situation where you're told you will either cooperate with us or we're going to indict you and you're looking at 20 to life and um, for me that signals um, it represents an energy that has surfaced on this planet time and time again and we we know uh, about uh, McCarthyism same thing witches Jews, you name it. It's just about demonizing a certain group of people and then having a governmental body or somebody come to you and try to uh, threaten you and control your actions through fear. So because this whole thing started uh, with such a beautiful experience, my talk was about faith over fear. Because uh, going forward, I had to make a decision as to what to do. But I want to show you just a little bit about what I was put through for two years um, they told my attorney I got to leave that day But they told my attorney That they wanted, they thought I was an invaluable tool And um, they wanted me to infiltrate Sandy's organization Wear a wire And um, I was just like No, this isn't going to happen So this, this was the first raid And um, uh, Excuse me So that, those were the first raids This was the second raid, Um, excuse me, the third raid. The second one I didn't take any pictures of. And the second one was just a break-in where they tried to stage it and make it look like um, something had broken into my house. But when people break into your house, they steal something. They didn't steal anything. They just completely trashed it again. And um, then the third time, I had moved, and uh, they got another warrant and continued uh, the harassment tactics. So one was one side of my bed. This was the other side of my bed. Um, this is just different rooms. This is the kind of crazy stuff they do because there's other bottles they don't touch, uh, that kind of stuff. They pull in. This is the vacuum uh, light plugs, completely tearing everything apart, throwing, it's like a tornado hits your home. In, I, again, a picture can never, ever, ever replace the trauma and the emotion when you see your home like this. Um, This is how, I was in a duplex by this time. So this is how my normally looked. This is the left wall. This is the right wall. And there was also a couch. And they ripped the, you know, (coughs) as they did. And they also brought stuff up from a store, I mean, um, kind of like a basement, and boxes. And they just would dump everything all over your house because none of this, this stuff was in my living room. Uh, I think just for for uh, shock value is why they do a lot of the stuff, because it's just <laughs> craziness. So I, uh, for two years, uh, they wanted me to cooperate. They infiltrated my friends. They broke into my employer's office. They rifled through his files. Didn't steal anything again. Um, they were, later I found out they were looking for ledgers, but they went to so many of my friends. So nobody is safe, because they go. Um, I promoted nightclubs, and I also worked uh, full-time for a guy who had um, the gas shut-off valve in the event of an earthquake. And those people are put into a situation where they're threatened. Why are you working with this woman? You know that she's involved in a big drug conspiracy. Uh, we can audit your books. They kind of rain terror on those people, too, to the point where those people ostracize you. They're like, look, you know, <laughs> but, you know, can you just sort of go away because they want the heat to go away. They tried to get several of my friends to say that they'd seen me sell drugs. Not one person would, which is amazing because you know if you have anybody who has an ax to grind, then there you go. So uh, they take me to Waco, Texas. Um, and uh, that's another thing, I, I can't digress too much, but this whole thing is about money, and it's driven by money. And all of that kicked in in the 80s where Uh, Small towns were given money if they could show they were prosecuting federal drug cases. And Waco had nothing to do with this case. Our case was out of Dallas. But they moved the case to Waco. I met many women in prison who had their cases moved from Austin to Waco, uh, San Antonio to Waco. Why Waco? Well, because there was one judge there. And that judge was completely corrupt. He's also the one who gave all the French Davidians so much time, even though the jury didn't think that the victims that were tried later would get that amount of time. Anyway, he, um, I get uh, 24 years. I'm held responsible for all the ecstasy that Sandy manufactured. Sandy cooperated, and he got later he came back to the US and he got three years probation only. Uh, he wasn't even disbarred because uh, he was a lawyer. Anyway, so um, then uh, after a year in Waco, I get to go to federal prison in Dublin, and again, this is uh, my mom, my dad, and my grandmother, so this is kind of what prison looks like now, only you know, replace that with a black family, an Asian family, Hispanic family, um, because we've become the biggest penal colony, colony on the planet, and Anyone who exercises their their right to go to a trial, the Thornburg memorandum under the Bush administration said pump them to the highest amount of time you can get them. So you're penalized if you go to trial. And uh, the good thing that happened to me when you surrender and you don't allow fear to dictate your decisions, because I I could have cooperated, even my parents were like, "Why why don't you just plead guilty? Why don't you just do what they want you to do? um well because some of us can't be corrupted you're not i wasn't going to sell my soul i wasn't going to do to others what i saw them doing to me and basically they want you to testify against anybody who won't who does go to trial who won't cooperate and i was more willing to surrender myself to this journey and experience it and see what happens and put my faith in god than i was to crawl into bed with the federal government so john beresford Some of you may or may not know who John is. John was the first person to ever order LSD from uh, Sandoz in this country. And um, he was a doctor. Uh, Aldous Huxley told him about LSD. Uh, John, when he ordered it, he didn't know um, how much he was getting. He ordered one gram. And I I wanted to get all the (laughs) details. I wanted to get all the details correct, so I have been in touch with Dieter, and Dieter works for Albert Hoffman, because I wanted to make sure I told this exactly right, because there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of versions of this story. So, um, that was, that's four, th- I, some people say 10,000 hits, uh, Dieter said no, it's 4,000, 4,000 hits. Um, John uh, is the one who came up, because it's liquid, and he was like, you know, how can I dispense this? And he came up with the idea of the sugar cubes. So anytime you see the sugar cube thing, that was John's idea. And John and Michael Hollingshead created a, a something called a Goros Scientific Something together. And um, John wanted to do it uh, like uh, therapeutically and be very responsible in, a, in an environment. Um, and Michael was a little bit more... Cavalier about it or whatever. He, he turned on Timothy Leary and some other people. There's some debate about some of those facts. I'm not going to get into that. But um, John never wanted any notoriety. In fact, he always wanted to just kind of downplay everything. And so when you read about it, you see a lot about Michael Hollingshead, head, but you don't see much about John Beresford. John later became obsessed uh, with the fact that people were going to prison for LSD. And he felt somewhat responsible He um, is Buddhist, and he gave all of his inheritance away, everything basically that he had to uh, the Buddhist monks in Canada so that they would have uh, buy some land and have a place. And he came here to the U.S., and I don't know how he did it because he didn't have a car, but he would just appear. at prisons to visit us. Uh, anyone who was in for psychedelics and later uh, any other people didn't matter. He, he felt so much compassion for, for prisoners. And um, uh, you'll see that uh, on his is
1: this little guy, and
3: he passed away, and, and, and I'm worried that with me today. But um, John uh, talked to Albert Hoffman a lot about the prisoner situation. He always wanted somebody to get behind the uh, to put a face on this and to care and to want to talk about it so he, he again he traveled around and um, devoted his life Jonathan Ott, some of you may know who Jonathan Ott is uh, the beautiful thing about being in prison is that the community I heard about my story and Nancy Martz and other people who were serving time for LSD and and they literally took time out of their lives to come and visit, which, I mean, that's huge to think that somebody in this crazy world, we're all so busy, would go to a prison and visit somebody they don't even know and you have to lie uh, because the prisons won't let anybody visit unless you fill out a form and say you knew that person, so it it really is remarkable that these people uh, came out of the woodwork Uh, Mickey Norris, Chris Conrad, and Virginia Reznor also came and visited me a lot. They're very much involved in the marijuana movement, and Virginia's no longer with us. But they put me on the cover of Shattered Lives, and these people really got involved in trying to help me regain my freedom and others. And they're the unsung heroes. So, uh, anyway, they did a free aiming campaign. Uh, um, I did a lot of praying when I, when I was in God, uh, when I was in prison and asking to, for a sign from God because we had a pack going in and, um, <laughs> and there were times you know I was in there for nine years three months. There's times where you're kind of like where are you? Um, but all of a sudden it's almost like you sort of pass some uh, invisible test because all of a sudden it's like a floodgate of um, activity has surged for me and Glamour magazine David France. Um, contacted me and he did a feature on my story. Uh, because he did a feature, it was easy to send the article uh, to politicians. Uh, I filed for executive clemency. President Clinton was in by this time. And um, uh, because it was, nobody's going to write a letter for you when they don't know what you actually did. And you can't send people your transcripts, and the transcripts don't say what happened anyway. But um, because of the article, I got over 15 sitting politicians, who wrote letters saying this is an outrage, this is not what we passed, this is not what we intended, but DOJ took the laws that they gave them that they said were intended for kingpins, which were letting kingpins go free, and the wives and girlfriends and ancillary people were doing the long sentences that they say that were supposedly intended for kingpins. So there was a ridiculous flaw. The sad thing is that nothing has changed. Nobody has tried to repeal the laws. That they themselves were like oh, outraged that this was even going on. It's still going on. So um, um, here's uh, Chris Conrad and Nikki. This is just two days after I got out of prison. And it was a shock. They just called me into the office. And they were like, you're, from, you're going home. And... Um, <laughs> Virginia Reznor, who's no longer with us. Heather did uh, time for LSD, and so did her boyfriend. And uh, John Beresford was very involved with them as well. So these lovely ladies, uh, well, Virginia and Mickey, they did an exhibit and traveled all over the nation and set up the exhibit to put a face on the prisoners. And they're really the unsung heroes because... uh, It was really lonely back then. It's becoming more, uh, there's more awareness. I don't know if you know, but John Legend has just gone all in and said he's going to launch a campaign to end mass uh, incarceration. He's even performing at two prisons. So thank you, John Legend, because as Elizabeth Taylor stepped up for AIDS and then everybody got involved when when she did, I have a feeling that a whole bunch of artists are going to follow in Legend's footsteps. So, um, John, uh, I'd like for you guys to look at the posters over there because um, it shows the, um, uh, the period. I can't who's memorial. And um, unfortunately, I didn't see him. I was making plans to go see him when I got the call that he had passed away uh, September 07. And um, so it has the period where he has the LSD and also his work with prisoners, and then the last years when he was married uh, to a woman named Virginia Blythe. So I, I really want to honor John, and I encourage all of you to learn a little bit more about him. He's, uh, he met with the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama told him, you don't have to reincarnate anymore, you, you're done, <laughs> unless he wants to. So. Anyway, um, oh okay. so anyway, this is the same poster that's over there. Um, at the memorial because John was so devoted to prisoners which is what I'm devoted to now I have the Can't Do Foundation and I work tirelessly to try to spotlight the women I left behind and hot prisoners and, and other people who are serving draconian sentences um, we, uh, we released balloons with the names and pictures of prisoners um, and sent them up to John this is a friend of John who came in and um, interviewed all of the LSD people who were in prison, uh, John Humphrey. Uh, Ron Breton is a friend of John's who they, John was determined to create an LSD museum. And a lot of people have tried, but nobody's done it. But, But John's passion was to create an LSD museum didn't have it because Ron just got it to me so I didn't get it in the thing, but there's only one picture, and there was an LSD museum in Pasadena and uh, I'll show it to you, but anyway it was, um, this is the only picture of it, and um, so John's dream did come true but uh, if, uh, after a while the foundation for that, they just couldn't continue to support it financially so um, and that's John's uh, widow, Virginia. And uh, lastly, these are all women I did time with. Uh, Sue Ann Charlton, uh, she served time for LSD. Her parents were uh, work on the Manhattan Project. They were all scientists. And uh, if you don't know what that is, that was the atom bomb. <laughs> and the kids lived out in the desert. And she has a fascinating story. Dorothy was in for marijuana. I was in for MDMA, and Nancy Marks got 30 years for LSD. And um, anyway, I just encourage you. I got out and um, started the Can Do Foundation, and I just I encourage you guys to just keep in mind. Uh, anytime you have an opportunity to talk to somebody, that we really have got to rein in the drug war and put an end to it altogether. And. Um, also, I, I did a documentary called 420, uh, which is what, a couple of days from now. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's about the drug war, but I focused on marijuana and the whole 420 holiday as well. And um, if you guys want to ask me about that, I have uh, some of those if somebody's interested. And anyway, thank you for having me, and uh, I really, really appreciate you You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So, does Amy's story make you angry? Just think of it. That low-life scum asshole of a lawyer husband of hers not only didn't get disbarred, he didn't spend any time in prison. He only got three years probation. While Amy, who was only involved by the fact that she helped that jerk get a lawyer, well, she spent nine years, nine years in prison now if you don't think that is seriously fucked up then you must be a narc or something the next time you hear someone say that the United States is the best country on earth well you should tell them Amy's story and ask them how that squares with being a decent country and before you get too lost in the details of her story please keep in mind that the drug that sent her husband off into the darkness was alcohol, not MDMA And I think the other thing that should be taken away from Amy's story is that, well, it doesn't take all that much for the government goons to drag you into prison on a conspiracy charge. In some cases, just knowing about the criminal activities of another may be enough to get you into a world of trouble. So be careful. Be very careful about who you're involved with. If you don't watch out and you're acting just like a good Samaritan as Amy did, well, you could wind up in prison too. Hers is a cautionary tale that we must all keep in mind as we become ever more involved in psychedelic advocacy. And I hope you made a note of the fact that cops and DEA agents are not, most definitely not, your friends. My God, those assholes trashed Amy's home on three occasions before throwing her in jail for a crime that she had nothing to do with and no knowledge of. Let's face it. Drug cops and DEA agents are low-life bastards and they deserve all the bad things that are drawn into their lives. Hopefully their children will see them for what they are and abandon them in their old age. And yes, I know that some of our fellow slaughters are DEA agents and drug cops. All I can say is that I feel really sorry for you and hope that you can find a way to get out of the horrible job you're in before your karma is so black that it'll take a hundred more lifetimes to clean it. (sighs) (laughs) well now that i've had a chance to vent a little i feel much better hopefully i haven't left you in too bad a mood right now but as you know it's not all lollipops and sunshine sometimes we have to take the bull by the tail and face the situation and for now this is lorenzo signing off from cyberdelic space be careful out there my friends